Welcome to the latest edition of Simon and White and the podcast at the center of business, media, and government. A lot going on. Joined, as always, by co-host Mark Simon. Mark, say hello, please. Hi, how are you doing? All right. Uh, that's Mark Simon, who's a, a longtime media executive and longtime business guy in East Asia. I'm Christian Whiten, finance guy, former diplomat and PR guy. Mark, let's start off with the big news today, which is trade, or at least it was supposed to be the big news. Catherine Tai, uh, the U.S. trade representative for um, for the Biden administration. That's you know sort of the top trade job, although other people have a, a finger in the pie. Uh, the Commerce Secretary, uh, sometimes the Secretary of State, sometimes even the Secretary of Defense. Anyway, the, people have been wondering where the Biden administration is going on trade. It's reversed everything else that Donald Trump has done that they've been able to get their hands on. They're trying, I would argue, to reverse economic prosperity now with these tax hikes pending before Congress. But trade's been a little bit of a mix-up. So anyway, they said they're going to have a big strategy. I don't see it. They sort of came out and said China's in non-compliance with the phase one traded deal that Trump negotiated with them. It's sort of like, no, duh. They were supposed to buy a bunch of things. And like a lot of agreements, China signs, they didn't. Uh, I'm not seeing a big strategy here that explains where they're going. What do you think? The, the strategy is basically all the lobbyists in Washington, D.C. are swinging from chandeliers tonight because they just opened up the greatest lobbying. She basically, she, this is a policy. The policy is there's $370 billion of goods there's tariffs on. We are going to go point by point and look at that, okay? We're going to look at these on a piecemeal basis, which does what? It sends lobbyists for every company into Treasury, into Commerce Department, and, of course, USTR. It was the most ridiculous announcement I've seen. And, look, it came off to me as, like, the planning meeting for Afghanistan, in other words, like, you know, back if somebody said, all right, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan. This is how we'll handle it. And then she shows up today and it's just like Afghanistan. We're out. We're out. OK, we're just going to handle it this way and then declare taking 120,000 people was a success. Look, they set this up all week. As one guy said, kudos to the USTR press team for getting the Wall Street Journal, Politico and um and 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 a Politico, Wall Street Journal, Politico, and the Wall the Politico, the Wall Street Journal, and I'm trying to remember the other one. Um, probably, the, probably the Financial Times, if and yeah, and, so to and, basically and Bloomberg to ba and, and everybody, they, everybody just basically goes, oh, this is going to be a new one. It's going to be a tough point by point because they love that stuff. They think that stuff actually works. They think that stuff actually means something. It means nothing. Basically, what they've done is they've now taken trade policy with China. They've put it behind the scenes that you can't see anymore. In other words, nobody's going to be able to see it. It's going to be bureaucrats making decisions in areas that we just have no idea what's going to happen. And it's going to get so convoluted and that basically China won. In other words, there's no other way to say this. They're going to get what they want over time. Within a year, I promise you, will everything, everything, oh, you know, we have to have this hoodie at no tariff because the American people can't can't deal with a five cent tariff. We have to do this. They are essentially giving up on American manufacturing. They are giving up on American agriculture. This is literally probably as bad as it could turn out other than her just walking up and waving the white flag. I think people are looking at this. I think that's why you're correct. There is no strategy that's being talked about right now because there's nothing there. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts undressing this thing and goes, 
hold it. So basically what you're saying is the only the only thing here is you can lobby and get your tariff removed. Well, yes, that's that. That's the bottom line. That's all we know here. Oh, and we might do something down the road and we might have a conversation. So essentially, this is the constant of the Biden administration. They're just kicking it down the road, hoping that nobody will notice. I think this is a massive mistake. If Trump could stop running around ranting and raving about 2020, he could actually get some points for his legacy by defending himself on this and, I, and defending his policies. Look, there's a couple of myths here. First of all, and I love the Wall Street Journal editorial page, but Trump's tariffs did not hurt America. What was the unemployment rate in December 2019? And what were wage gains? The fact of the matter is we do not have trade policy because steel that goes into U.S. automobiles drives our trade policy. That's not what drives our trade policy. It's good jobs. It's rising wages. And it's full. It's the best employment situation we can get. Trump got us that despite these things. Secondly, I went through all these tariffs. It's just ridiculous. Anybody who says, well, you know, this is really tough on us. No, it's not. Nobody really suffered anything. I'm in Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong when these things were coming through. The Garmentos are my friends. They just shrugged. No big deal. In fact, most of the most of the retailers ate it. Have you seen the price on steel? Down. So if tariffs were so bad, what was that is? All right, aluminum's up. Aluminium, as we say. Alumin <laughs> aluminium is up. But the fact of the matter is, that's really market-driven. That's other things. I mean, it's just, to me, I cannot... This is one of these things that, you know, only really smart people can screw this stuff up, you know, and, and look who it is. There's no doubt John. Now, and the Chinese fully believe that John Kerry is calling the shots now on China, fully believe, because this is the type of thing Kerry would deliver. So this is going to get me in trouble. But this is starting to look like the witches of Eastwick. You know what I'm saying? In other words, John Kerry. Then you've got Carly. You got Yellen, Ty and. Um, and, and Ramondo over there. I mean, they're basically out there doing their own thing, completely undercutting everything, you know, completely undercutting everything on this, on, on what's happening. I'm sorry, I lost you for a second. Completely undercutting anything that we're doing with China. But here's the thing. This is what really gets me. The Chinese flew 90 flights. They had a military exercise, a military exercise, inside the Taiwan air defense zone on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and a bit of Monday. What do we do Monday morning in the U.S.? We give them everything they want <laughs> right. on trade. What's the message that's being sent? It is unbelievable. It is it's unbelievable bad. that, they, that that message goes out there. Right. I, I, and all this talk about, oh, we're competent. And this is the really thing that gets me about, I'll be honest with you, you got to name them gets me about these reporters at the Wall Street Journal, Bob Davis and Josh Ubum, this guy, Steve O'Livy over at the uh, Politico. They were called in the room. They were obviously briefed on this stuff. It was, it was punted to them. And they basically, instead of going with actually doing reporting, there's no reporting they did here. They basically got a briefing in a friendly manner from a White House and they took it. The reason why I was tweeting this stuff three days ago and that was kind of by foreshadowing this one of the few times, right, is because from our days at Apple Daily, residually, we still have some friends on the Democratic and Republican sides of the aisles up in the Senate. 
And somebody I spoke with who's a Democrat said, yeah, they're selling out. And, and they knew it because they had to brief Congress. They had to brief the leadership. So the leadership knew it was coming down the road. And it's just ridiculous. And they know what's going on. It's, it's kind of like the Ramondo message. That was, if you watch the Bob Davis interview with Ramondo from, I mean, if you're a human rights activist, that's a horror show. I mean, Wilbur Ross never said stuff like that. You know, basically, she's saying, you know, we've got to move forward. I mean, just really pushing everything to the side. It, right. it, it, and, and so the point is, is like, I guess those jobs, Mnuchin wasn't any good on China policy. Wilbur Ross wasn't a real help. And right. so I guess those jobs at Treasury and, and Commerce lead to that. But, you know, it's it's same boss. New boss is the same as the old boss is basically what it is. Well, the funny thing is, is that this administration originally made signals like it was going to stay tough. I mean, they were uh, the part of the Commerce Department that Wilbur Ross discovered, which gave him a chip in the game of the China policy. He wanted something to do with that was the Bureau of Industry and Security that mm -hmm. is in charge of export controls. Very sleepy part of the department. Usually uh, there's a small little grouping of attorneys and others who read tea leaves from this organization and all of a sudden exploded because it started um, stopping the export of U.S. made uh, semiconductors and also semiconductors made abroad with U.S. tools. Um, so that affected semiconductors made in Taiwan and Korea and Japan from going to Huawei. And it's interesting. I mean, Wilbur, so anyway, Wilbur Ross, you're right. He wasn't great, but at least he didn't, he didn't use sort of talking points from 2000 about how China is going to be wonderful and peaceful and a partner if we just uh, make it rich. But, um, you know, you had um, early in the administration, there was this idea that Kevin Wolf, who had done the job in the Obama administration, would come back. But I said, no, he's too soft on China. And they put someone else in the job. But, you know, I don't know if that was just window dressing or they're just trying to get the right number of, of um, you know, Look, sort of people in spots. But, yeah, they, they I don't have out. I don't have insights into the Biden administration, but I certainly do know people on the Democratic side of the aisle who were looking at them. Now, this person was particularly upset about what happened in the in the budget. So they were a little, she was a little bit more animated. But here's the point. When I was in D.C., you know, a while back, I think there's a growing belief that essentially China policy is being, I, I think the best people we have on po China policy are probably uh, Sullivan, Ratner, Eli Ratner, Blinken, Campbell, and um, Doshi and, and that crew. I think it's a good crew. I think they're not suckers. But we have a huge problem. My Jack Nicholson John Kerry is a monster problem. Right. And the, he the is the special envoy for marrying rich women and also the special <laughs> climate envoy. Right? He, the, 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 when, when he is he is undercutting U.S. policy. He doesn't care. He everything is climate, climate, climate. And I do think there if there's a change in the House, we're going to see a huge difference because right now. There's two representatives, one from West Virginia and a guy named Griffin from uh, Virginia, a very conservative guy. And they're sending letters around to these left wing groups that were promoting climate change. Now, Code Pink and other things saying, hey, we want to know what your funding is and why all of a sudden you're involved in climate change. My belief is that's that's a shot across the bow. 
I think when the Republicans take the House in 2022, which I think most people think they will, um, if they keep doing this, they certainly will. I think at that point in time, anything that Kerry was hoping to do is going to be completely undercut because we're going to see how dirty this is. John Thornton's running around there talking about John Kerry. They're doing stuff with Wall Street. I, I can't believe that the squad, the left, or anybody else, I can't believe that they could actually sit by and watch this happen. But I'm telling you, they want 2011 again, and that's their goal. And it may happen for a few months, but I think we all know what's going to happen. But still, the, the height of her standing up there after all the Chinese were doing on the weekend, and she's basically shows up. Why not just cancel this? Why not just cancel? Say it's even worse issue. because she's actually Taiwanese American and one of the most sort of senior Taiwan. I mean, for I don't, you know, we're, we I like know, I know, I know, I know Taiwan's tried to milk that. She's basically not, you know, what I'm saying <laughs> she, she, that that I'm I'm sure she'll give us a lecture on her proud heritage, but the Taiwanese I know aren't counting on any favors from her, <laughs> right? You know, well, following the money and sticking with China here for a second, so Evergrande which uh, you know, caused a real market hiccup a little while uh, ago. And all of a sudden, the markets decided this is not a problem. It does not pose a systemic challenge that uh, the market's creating for other reasons, including the, the fact that interest or, excuse me, the debt may not always be completely free. Um, but news today, and then Evergrande would be acquired. It's not actually disclosed this explicitly, but Evergrande's trading was halted in Hong Kong um, because one of its subsidiaries said it, it was probably going to have a bid for acquisition. Similarly, another Hong Kong company in the real estate business, Hopson, had its yeah. equities um, trading was. It's a division today. of a. Yeah. It's a division of a division. Um, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange has no power over these guys whatsoever. Although I will make a plug for ourselves. Um, they seem to have plenty of time to go after Jimmy Lai's <laughs> companies, um, and we all know that. But the fact of the matter is, is that, look, I disagree. I completely disagree that this is not a systematic risk. You know, um, re real estate's an area that I have a professional interest in as well and on a fairly large scale in Taiwan and other places. And I'm just telling you, Kristen, look, people's wealth is wrapped up inside of these houses. There's actually a reasonable case to be made that in every bit of civil unrest that we've seen in the last 30 years or 25 years in Asia has been based on threats to people's equity in their homes. I can make that case in a lot of, a lot of places. Even in 2003 in Hong Kong, what drove a lot of the dissatisfaction was the massive decline in people's homes after SARS. But the point is, is that, look, we don't know how deep this is going to go if you shoot your bullets in one direction, you run out of bullets. China doesn't have unlimited bullets in letting these things go. And everyone's going to take a haircut on Evergrande. It's not a done deal yet. You've got over, and it's bringing forth all these problems. For example, demographics. It's bringing forward all these issues in China about too many houses, okay? Too much money tied up in housing. People are not going to just sit back and take these losses. Okay, well, I'll wait five years. I'll wait seven years. I'm not so sure that happens. I think people are going to be upset about it. Banks are, we're going to see what's going to happen. And certainly, you know, I mean, I think we're going to see things such as the Belt and Road, 
And I think other things where people are going to say, do we really have that money to spend abroad when we need to keep bailing these people out? You know, there's another company called Blue River in Hong Kong, and they just sold their stake in one of these Evergrande companies. They used to have it on their books at 57 Hong Kong dollars a share. They just sold it at three. Okay, so they just took a hundred million dollar haircut. Uh, people go, well, that's not real money. I go, yes, it is, because that's the money that the banks are looking at that they have. I, I think what happens in, 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 in Evergrande is there's going to be a, a massive slowdown in building. You know, that's going to put workers on the street. And they don't have the people. I think this is what Evergrande has been to me. I keep looking at it. It's a complete corrupt mismanagement. It's everything there. But it's essentially, imagine people going, okay, we've built, we've built, we've built. And then they don't realize that, hey, there's nobody coming to move in these homes. You know, it's like Hong Kong. Hong Kong has had probably about 80,000, I think it's a little bit more, maybe maybe 90,000 people have permanently left Hong Kong. It's more than 1% of the population. You know, it's close to 1%. That's, let's say it's four people at home. All of a sudden, that's 21,000 homes, apartments right. that are unoccupied. That's a year's worth of building in Hong Kong. And that's why people I know who are trying to leave Hong Kong right now are having trouble. Why are they having trouble? Because flats that are under 15, 16, flat prices are going down in Hong Kong. And Evergrande is part of that. Which is amazing considering Hong Kong pegs its dollar to ours and therefore gets our monetary policy. Our drunken sailor print dollars as fast as you possibly can to buy up mortgages, government debt, including the government debt that we're about to incur uh, with this year's budget and, and spendathon. Um, yeah. And so to have that kind of monetary policy and real estate prices declining is, is, is pretty shocking. Yeah. Uh, you know, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I was just going to jump in the next uh, the next topic here. Um, all right. Over in the United Kingdom, fuel shortages, actually, people lining up at pumps, people getting violent, uh, the military having to be brought in. Um, you know, there is a natural gas crisis, too, with that. Uh, the price of natural gas spiking there. I guess apparently not enough wind driving wind power in the UK. Um, and uh, uh, you have people trying to blame this on Brexit. Last time I looked at the calendar, Brexit was about five years ago. Uh, more likely a culprit, I imagine, would be the type of disruptive government policies that um, are causing labor shortages in the United States, despite this incredible demand for labor. So uh, I don't know. What do you think? What's, uh, what's cooking over there? I mean, you play in the market, you know, this is what happens. I mean, I, I think the real thing is, is that, look, when you're coming out of COVID, production was not matched up with recovery. So that's a problem. But the real issue is, and continues to be, is it looks like the Brits have the same problem as we do. They're not getting people back to work fast enough. And I think there's two things going on there. First of all, you have to blame government policy because essentially they're paying people too much. They're not moving people fast enough back into the workforce. But the other thing, too, is a very real thing that's, again, happening in our economy and in our world. And that's demographics, which I'll, I'll build off the Evergrande story. And I think it's a huge theme for any investment going forward. Demographics, you got to look at any company you look at. You got to look at the demographics of the, of the effective demographics on that company. Look. The fact is, is the UK is an aging population, just like every place else. Fortunately, they have a good flow of immigrants coming in, and that helps them. But really, 
they have not found a way to pull, same in the U.S., pull back in those older workers who don't want to be exposed to COVID. That's a problem. It's a real problem. The businesses that we have in other places, it's a problem. People are less likely to come back. They don't want to interact or a little worried about it. And, and, and the problem that that's, that is, is really just the bad information they're getting. Not the fake news in terms of what people think it would be. In my mind, it's the constant scaremongering that's going on. Yes. In other words, Fauci the other day, well, we may not be able to get together for Christmas. But <laughs> I mean, e- even everybody's just looking at him like, what is he talking about? We're already going to football games, okay? We're not going to pull back in. Now, and, and the New York Times today had said, you got to watch out for the A variant. Ah, what, yes. what, what variant is going to be? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's reached the point and it continues to, we've continued to have the problem in our society of basically people making economic decisions about their livelihoods on really what I consider bad information. If you're older, if you're vaccinated, you know, you can work. If you need to wear a mask, wear a mask. But we don't have the people coming into the workplace. I will say this. I spoke with a relative of mine. He's a manager in a trucking company. It was incredibly interesting. He said he doesn't have a problem getting long haul truckers. The problem they have is getting the older guys who have to interact with people. They don't want to interact with people. And so, and the reason why is because they basically, they don't trust the information they're getting, you know? And I think the, I think the reason why they don't trust it is because we limit it so much. That's my belief. I think the moment somebody tries to limit information, everybody's like, okay, why are you limiting this information? Yeah, well, and it's been a lot of misinformation lying. And then actually hard data, you say follow the science and follow the numbers. Uh, If you look at hard data, the Delta wave, we're way past the peak, past the average. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's been that way for a month. The peak, if you look at seven-day moving average, and I encourage you to go, uh, I'm not sure if it's pronounced world meters, worldometer. uh, But anyway, it's just the raw data country by country. And you have seven-day moving average shows the peak in the United States for Delta was uh, September 3rd, so more than a month ago. And that mortality, which you'd expect to follow by seven weeks, seven days or, or 14 days, sure enough, peaked in the middle of September. And we're going down. You don't get that message. And part of it, I think, also is the middle of the country is pretty much back to business as usual. Uh, yes. But I was just in Seattle over the weekend. Everyone's wearing a mask indoors. It feels like the middle of the country a year ago. Uh, supposedly, they're 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 they have to start asking for proof of vaccination or a recent test if you want to go to a restaurant. They're already doing that in New York, but I saw in Seattle and have heard from New York that people aren't actually doing that, at least not too much. Don't you get the feeling that these like health public health officials, they're like, first of all, they they all remind me of Peck from uh, Ghostbusters. You know what I'm saying? Who's gonna, you know, yes, they, they all remind character. me of that. back when the Hollywood could make fun of the EPA. Yes, yes, and so and so this before the EPA was a hero. But <laughs> the thing that really cracked me up is like you look at him and it's like it's like the, you, I was watching De Blasio from New York and his health commissioner. It's like, well, ever coming? No, we're not coming through this. You know, I mean, they, it's like they can't. They have to find one last thing to grab onto to be important, to hold power. It's, I don't know what the design of it is, but I really believe that probably two years from now, the sitcoms are going to have a field day 
you know, on these, on this stuff. And the other thing too is, look, I, I've had it. So I've had it and I've, I've, I've had the disease and I've had other virus and I've gotten vaccinated. I'm fine. You know what I'm saying? You know, I still wear a mask every once in a while when I walk in places, you know, not all the time, but I, I'm, I'm from Asia. I've been wearing a mask for seven, nine, 10 years. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm longer than that. When you have a cold, I got the sniffles now, I'll wear a mask. You know, it's just a courteous thing. But Kristen, I have to tell you, I, I think that in the UK, to watch Boris Johnson shake the hands of petroleum truck drivers as if they're just back from the shores of Dunkirk is <laughs> hilarious. It's like, come on, man. All we got to do is get some gas delivered. You know what I'm saying? Right. But, you know, it's, 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 and, and there is, there is a labor shortage that we're really going to have to look for in the near right. term. Well, and apparently this is also going to drive food prices higher or maybe even lead to sure. food, food shortages. While we're still on the topic of sort of greenish stuff causing, causing um, unusual circumstances, put it that way, Tesla actually beat expectations. Uh, third quarter sales were at 241,000 units. That's up from about one. 140 last year that beat expectations um you know this is a company i'd like to like but it's just if you look at the fundamentals it's trading at 400 price to earnings yeah. 400 and you know sometimes you get crazy pe ratios if a company has essentially zero earnings but eked out a tiny bit but that's not the case with uh tesla <laughs> and get this the market cap is um 767 billion so three quarters of a trillion dollars, um, and I think they do about 31 billion in sales. So uh, crazy overvaluation. I understand people say, well, um, yeah, but this is the, the pioneer in electric vehicles, and even though General Motors and Ford did, and all those are getting into it, um, that Tesla is the first mover, or it does does this better, and the other guys are going to suck at it. Uh, one little footnote before, before I get your comment. Uh, so the, the White House has a big big get together on electric vehicles. Of course, Ford is there. Of course, GM is there. Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary there, front and center, all the unions. Guess who's missing? Elon Musk, the CEO and founder of Tesla, who uh, also occasionally says unsupportive things about the White House. What do you think? First of all, I love Tesla. I think that guy is, I think it's a fantastic company. I think they do everything from shingles on your roof with solar panels to batteries, even to try to rescue little Thai boys and build bubbles. I think they're a fabulous company. If you remember that when they tried to, he went down there and tried to do the rescue. Here's the problem. They got a P&E of 400. I wouldn't buy them tomorrow. I mean, that's like, that's like making the case for them is like making the case for Evergrande in a lot of ways. You know what I'm saying? Right. But the point is that I think that people have to remember with this company is that I would buy Ford. I like Ford. Ford's got the new F-150 Lightning. I talked to somebody who drove it. Guy said it's a fantastic truck. He said it's going to be there. I think batteries and I think I think battery power, I think, the, I think all this stuff is moving forward. Um, it's going to get a real shot in the arm, whether I like it or not, from the government through tax breaks and everybody else. If you're buying renewables, if you're buying not so much um, the, the the battery makers, some of like that. But I mean, look, I think if you look at Ford, I think if you look at some of these companies that are really doing some things, you know, Volvo is going to go public pretty soon. Um, they're apparently going to go public and they have a fantastic 
just a fantastic electric car apparently coming out. I think what's going to happen is batteries, everything, we're putting all our focus there. We're going to get the advances. We always do. You have to have some positivity about the ingenuity of the world, not just the American people. Um, you know, I mean, if you got a 67 Chrysler and it's a hopped up car, I doubt you're going to drive it, but it'll be a museum piece one day. <laughs> That's right. But you can drive it on Sunday I, afternoon. I, I, I just believe that, uh, I just believe that, you know, it's going to, the Teslas are leading us to the world. But here's the thing. Again, Mark Simon talks demographics. The thing where Tesla and these other guys are going to be really ahead, far ahead of everybody is in the self-driving stuff. Yeah, I think the electric guys will basically, for whatever reason, the DNA or however they work that, it seems to work a little bit better with the electric car guys. And that's type to see whatever they, they're thinking in the same direction. Boy, I cannot wait. Like, you know, when your son is 28 years old, my bet is he will not have a car. My bet is he will go on his phone or whatever he's carrying in his hand. He'll push a number and says two people, three people. I'm taking dads out for the day, three people or whatever it is. And a, something will pull up into your driveway, whether it's an Uber, whether it's the Ford Club, whether it's the Mercedes Club. I don't know what it's going to be, but you'll have it on your you'll have it on your on your on your uh, app. Just like, you know, the scooters that you go around Washington, D.C., there's like nine different companies running around dropping those scooters off. I think it's going to be the same thing with cars. It's just going to have them on every corner and essentially they'll come to you and you'll get in the back and it'll drive you where you want to go. And if you have to drive out to the countryside, well, then you need a license and you'll drive. But for the most part, going around a lot of areas is going to be, it's going to be self-driving and that'll lead to what that'll lead to basically delivery trucks, pizza places, all that. A lot of jobs are, basically going to naturally disappear but it's not the end of the world right these transitions always seem to take a little longer yeah uh, than you think the other thing with self-driving cars it'll save some of these democrat cities that have spent money on sunshine and bunnies and public transportation to nowhere <clears throat> los angeles because you can get so much more utilization out of existing road networks if everyone is being self-driven you have fewer accidents you can put cars you know a few inches apart yeah um and uh yeah you know what you also friends. get rid of you can also know what you also get rid of unions rubber ducking the unions. Uh, I heard a great presentation on basically if you looked at New York City and you got, and you had all these cars there, you're going to get rid of a lot of people. The unions, you're going to they're going to disappear. A lot of those jobs in the bus companies, people are going to be just like you said, you're going to have the utilization of those cars. You pull over, go out, pull over, go out. It'll be, you know, stoplights probably won't exist. You know what I'm saying? Or if they do, it'll be very quick in, in terms of an efficient. So, yeah, I, I think I think anything along those lines is the way to go. Well, final topic, just a few seconds here. Uh, Jamie Dimon, the people a lot of people love to hate. He's the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, you know, this man knows how to make money. J.P. Morgan, I believe his stock price is up over 50 percent in the last year. It might be at an all time high, certainly a modern high. Um, anyway, he, uh, and he does interesting things. He'll come out and be very candid about things like Bitcoin. He, he doesn't think Bitcoin goes to zero, but he thinks it's a, a little bit of a, a fool's gold. I think he called it. Um, he just has a payday of 30 million bucks a year. And <laughs> this is upsetting some people. That's all. Know, 
by the standard of Wall Street, that's that I, I've heard of bigger than that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would I, think I'm, like, you know, managing director of Goldman Sachs might haul that in. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. Tom Brady probably hauls that in. Okay. LeBron James probably hauls that in. Oh, yeah, but they entertain people. Really, he makes his shareholders money. Who gives a damn how much he makes? If you're a shareholder of J.P. Morgan, which I am, by the way, and I'm perfectly happy with him getting $31 million a year. I'm not happy with them paying fines of billions of dollars with my with my money, so I prefer <laughs> they not get fined. You know what I'm saying? Because some of the But no, I mean, look, these guys run large, large businesses. You know, it's let, let me let me give you. A, I have a new theory on management, and I'll I'll finish it off. One of the reasons that we're going to have to happen with all this theft going on in all these inner city stores. Have you ever seen who they don't rob? They don't walk into the bodega. They don't walk into the Korean guy's shop and try to rip that one off because they'll take an ass kicking. All right. Mm. They walk into CVS. They walk into all these corporates where nobody has any incentive to stop them. We have to incentivize people in these corporations for loss prevention. If, if, if they can stop loss prevention, they make money. If they can't stop it, they lose money. In other words, you have to make those stores safe for the public, but you also have to make them safe for the owners in terms of their investment. And you do that. That's my thing with Jamie Dimon. If we're not happy with Jamie Dimon, we'll get rid of him. $31 million. First of all, I think that's his paycheck. I'm sure the deferred right, options sure. and everything sure else will be a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> $31 million. Hell, he probably gives away a third of it. You know what I'm saying? The tax man. God knows the tax man because of who he is. The tax man probably takes 25% of it. Mm -hmm. So that's gone. And then he has to probably give away another 25%. Who cares? I'm happy for Jamie Dimon. And I, I do think he seems like one of the more, you know, honest guys. I mean, like, you know, the guy at Goldman Sachs, I can't stand whatever his name is. You know, he's mm. out spinning records or something like that in his okay. black T-shirt. I mean, you know, come on. Oh, I mean, I think don't, Dimon don't try to be like Silicon Valley. You're never going to out black shirt the cool kids, you know, geeks I, it's, out there. I, I'm telling you, look. Don't worry about what other people make. Worry about what you make and you'll be a little bit happier in life. Um, you know, I was watching, who was I watching the other day in baseball? And, uh, you know, the guy's basically, he's been a bust this year. He's on the Mets. He's a complete bust, you know, but he's making like seven and a half million dollars a year. And somebody said, he goes, oh yeah, I can't believe the bum's making seven and a half million dollars a year. What's he supposed to do? Give it back? <laughs> like seven and a half million dollars a year. God bless the guy. All he has to do is if he, if he can work three years, he's done. You know, if he can, if he can play for three years. Look. Don't cut this. This whole thing actually is coveting other people's money. People never realize that it really is. It's not about anything else about responsibility. It's not about excess. It's about people looking around going, I can't believe how much money he makes. Kristen, I, I run into this all the time with journalists who want to know, oh, you know, why, why do you ride in the uh, 400 LX, Lexus or something like that when you're in Taiwan? I don't know, because I worked and do real estate development on the side. You know what I'm saying? It's it's it the covet the way people covet other people's money is phenomenal. I'm sorry. Diversity professors and anthropology professors. No, you don't make the same as Jamie Dimon.
Right, you know? right. Yes. Well, it comes down to yeah, the economic value you're creating. Just because a job is hard doesn't mean it's actually uh, hard to do or has a skill that's hard to achieve. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, too, you have these people who say they want to help the bottom, but really what they're happiest doing is just to bring down the top and uh, that they think it's it's economically and culturally better if everyone is even if everyone is sort of poorer on average but closer together that that's better than having you know people being able to see major upside if they create major value i think i think look i think the one thing is is greed is always there um i don't think greed's the worst thing in the world but i think coveting other people's money is really not a very good thing and i think unfortunately We've entered a culture of that where I don't know how it begins, but I don't think it existed a long time ago where like you see a George Stephanopoulos questioning a Jamie Dimon. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I was much more comfortable when George Stephanopoulos wasn't making the big money he was making because now George wants to know how he can make Jamie Dimon money, whatever that means. But my, my point is, is that is that essentially we do have these elites. And so what people do is they really, they see Jamie Dimon and they want to get into George and Jamie's world. And the easiest way to do it is to pull them down a little bit. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I mean, I, I, I am shocked all the time. Uh, who, who is, who, who is, Oh, Fred Smith from FedEx used to talk about every once in a while, like, you know, everybody wants my job, but not everybody can do my job. And by the way, I created my own job. You know what I'm saying? So in other words, why are you going to take the, why, why do you think you get to take money from me on this? It's like my whole, just one term, I'll let you go after this. My whole thing is giving back. I hate that term. I hate uh, that term. I hate the <laughs> idea. of giving. Especially when it's in reference to someone who's created a ton of jobs and shareholder wealth. Yeah. yeah I, I hate, I loathe. They've already done that. They've already given the, back. I, that's my, my point. My point is, did I take mm. something from you? Oh, you have right. to give back to the community. Did mm. I take something from you? Oh, I set up a burger stand. Well, I gave you a burger when you gave me the money. Did I, you know, what else do I have to give back to you? Is, you, is there something extra? Is there, did I hand you a, did I give you a coupon that said you could come back later and get 10% of my money? People, the problem with the give back thing is, is that what it doesn't do, it basically tells us there's a bill due rather than there's generosity. In other words, I, I don't think, I don't think people start a universities or they do great things or even Elon Musk or these other guys do things because they want to give back. Okay. What they do it is they do it because they want to do something great and they want to, they want to benefit other people. A little Christian kindness as people would say, a little charity, you know, this type of things is good, but the give back is really just somebody else's way of saying you must, you took something from us. Therefore, you give back. I must say, I've had devilish fun many, many times when people have asked, um, "Have you got? What do you got? You know, how do you guys give back to the community?" I stopped a room in Hong Kong one time, and the the two moderators hated me with a passion. As I was walking out of that room, it's Hong Kong now. Remember. I got stopped four or five times saying thank you for saying that because <laughs> they, they're all tired of it. They're all getting mm -hmm. tired of getting hit up. You know what I'm saying? I've said, you know, I mean, we Hong Kong's the most charitable place I've ever been in my life. And you're getting lectured, you know, by, by you're getting lectured by some group about giving back. By the way, you know what giving back was? Giving back was 
giving back was donating to a major U.S. university. Of course, that's the word. And then you, yes. in Hong Kong, in yeah, Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I need back. to I need to write that up, Ed, especially going into the holidays. Thank you for not giving in reference to <laughs> universities, because you know I seem to recall uh, you know some pretty big checks going to the university, and um, you know service rendered, service paid for, uh, that's done, and I don't really need to be the guy who helps you hire your 18th uh, provost or vice dean for diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I'll tell you, one of the things that I, I think we should talk about in a later, a later, a later version, later show, would be the value of these educations that are coming out. I've got oh, an yeah. eighteen, year, I've got a son at Purdue right now. I'm as happy I can be. You know, that's costing me, you know, forty five, forty two, forty three thousand dollars a year all in. It's a pretty good deal, to be honest with you, for a Purdue education. Um, and I got a daughter coming up, and I had, I won't name the university, but they, you know, they were they're pushing her. $74,000, you know, $74,000. And I'm like, a year, you know? And, and, and you know what the major, and it's a liberal arts school. And it's like, you know, why, why? These are almost worthless degrees. You know, that whole thing about how women are going to school much more than men. Yeah. I think if they let me take out my red pin and like say this degree doesn't, you know, in other right. words. In other words, yeah. and, and it gets back to what we were talking about with Jamie Dimon, like, Oh, I went. I went to Wellesley, and I have a degree. I have. I have a degree in art history, yeah, and you don't make as much as the plumber who comes to your house. <laughs> right. Guess right. What? Yeah. No. Because it, it genuinely is the. Uh, I don't know which bubble we're up to now. The third bubble, the fourth bubble. Um, but yeah, perhaps on a on a subsequent edition, we'll talk about how we can pop that because that certainly good. is one that needs to be popped. That's all the time we have now for this. And I'll be edition. talking to you next time from Taiwan. All right. Well, good to know you. They're going to let you in. We should talk about that, too. It's a little bit of a liberalization, a little bit of getting into East Asian countries. That's it for this edition. We'll see you again soon.